When the hearth fires burn low in the dead of night, people whisper grim tales of Hook Mountain, of degenerate clans of ogres, of malformed and inbred giants notorious for the rusty hooks, of jewelry harvested from the bodies of their victims, and of horrific lusts. Parents frighten naughty children with stories of the Hook Mountain ogres, never imagining that these hulking brutes may soon arrive upon their doorstep. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are looking at the third part of Rise of the Rune Lords, the Hook Mountain Massacre. Now we're not going to go into like a big background of the previous modules. If you haven't listened to those, you probably should. The Hook Mountain Massacre starts out with a familiar face from all the way back in the first module, the Elven Ranger Shalalu. She comes to Magnamar, which is where the player characters are at at this point, and goes, Hey, people up north haven't heard from a group known as the Black Arrows. Or maybe the mayor of Magnamar, if you are in good with him, says, Hey, I haven't heard from this group called the Black Arrows. And it sends the player characters off north to find out what happened to the Black Arrows. Now, the Black Arrows are a group of rangers who defend the area from threats from abroad, and they have their own fortress. They're kind of uh, localized adventurers who act as defenders of the region. So not hearing from these people who typically defend you from bad guys is a pretty important thing. So, you travel north and end up in the town of Turtleback Ferry. Why, Why is it called Turtleback Ferry? Because they have fairies made from turtle backs. Like from the backs of turtles? Yeah, like giant giant turtle shells. What did they call it before they had fairies made from the backs of turtle shells? I don't know, but you'd have to assume that it'd be worse than Turtleback Fairy. It, it, anything would be worse than Turtleback Fairy. That's a great name. Alright, so the player characters stop in Turtleback Fairy, but there's really nothing there. The player characters have no real reason to stay there other than just resupply. Actually, what you will find if you stay around Turtleback Fairy and get a fairly difficult spot check is you'll notice that some of the people of the town are marked with the Sahedrin rune that we've seen throughout the last few modules. Why are they marked with the Sahedrin rune is a very important question, especially when we've seen marauders and goblins and bad guys bearing this rune throughout the entire thing. Especially if you notice that a bunch of the people from the town are marked with the Sahedrin rune. If the player characters corner any of the townsfolk and really ask them about the Sahedrin rune, they will be hard-pressed to reveal any information, but eventually they'll mention, yeah, it was a tattoo I got from a local casino boat, where they gave it to a select few of their special patrons to give uh, certain little bonuses and benefits to them, and I just so happen to be one of their VIP members. Yeah, it turns out they got over 200 VIPs, and of course the Sahedrin Rune tattoos are actually linked to the evil Rune Lord, who plans on harvesting their souls later, but that's kind of not too important right now. This just gives us a glimpse of stuff that's going to be important later on, and reminds us that there is a deeper conspiracy underneath all this. Also, that casino boat is sunk and is no longer really accessible. The module mentions something about if you really need the player characters to check it out, you should throw a couple of, like, sharks or turtles or something in there to mess with them. But as a general rule, there's really nothing there. It's an unentity, 
And I guess in a sense, I feel like that's kind of an omission. It'd be really nice to have put a little something there or thrown them a bone if they decide to pursue it, especially since it's so hard to notice. And it could end up being a pretty significant distraction from the next part. Alright, this is just the build-up to the main part of the module, so let's just go north to find out what happened to the Black Arrows. We need to get to Fort Rannick. So the fort is like four miles north of town, and you go up through, there's there's a few hills and forest, and John, do, do you hear what sounds like a country bumpkin saying, here, kitty, kitty, kitty? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is the uh, next hook, I think, is uh, some voice being like, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. And Ogrekin is in the woods hunting down a ranger's animal companion. And if you fight him, he runs off back to his family farm. And, ooh, he's ugly. He The, the picture in the module makes him look deformed and like, oh, oh no, all, all of these Ogrekin are deformed. This is The Hills Have Eyes, isn't it? Yeah, this is The Hills Have Eyes. Actually, in the original module, I don't think it's in the anniversary edition that you've been looking at, but in the original module, there's a foreword where they talk about the numerous horror movies that actually inspired this. And The Hills Have Eyes is, of course, a big one. There's a few little tastes of the Blair Witch in there and a little bit of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just for good measure. Ugh. They even mentioned that they think that if Gary Gygax had been writing D&D in the era of DVDs and not so much in the era of budding fantasy novels that perhaps it would be more influenced by film than by books and there might be a list of suggested viewing rather than suggested reading but that's not the point the point is yeah it's the hills have eyes these are all going to be hideously deformed vicious cannibalistic murderers with a hint of nasty sexual proclivities just for good measure (laughs) exactly So their entire farmhouse and the whole barn are trapped all over and any way that you try and get into this house you're going to be facing traps and you're going to be facing these ogre kin which are combination fighter rogues. So if they get the drop on you they're really going to be doing a lot of damage and there's not really much to talk with about them. I mean they're... Oh, their leader is a necromancer with a very unfortunate name. Uh, yeah. In the radio play, they refer to her as Mommy, which I think is probably a little more appropriate. It's... It's not a slur, but it's kind of slur-adjacent, and that really bothers me. It, 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 I guess in a sense, I just don't see the need to do this. I guess they're trying to allude toward kind of the inbred hillbilly stereotype, but that's kind of crummy too. I don't like that either. I mean, yeah, we, we want to give the sense that the ogres are uncivilized, vicious beasts, but I don't think that's necessary, so I'm going to refer to her as Mommy Grawl. Yeah, so you, you fight all of these Grawls. One of them is so horrendously deformed that he's turned into a tendriculus, which is simultaneously cool and awful. And eventually you go to the basement and you release three people. The last of the Black Arrow. You know, wait, There's so there's like Mommy Grawl, who's like this giant, huge, like mass of bloated grossness and she's got a tendriculus which kind of makes me think of a sarlacc is this Jabba the Hutt? Actually, the picture kind of looks... Doesn't it... Yeah, doesn't it kind of allude to Jabba the Hutt? I think... I think there might be more references in here than we even recognize. Alright, so you release the Black Arrows, and there's three of them, and in the Anniversary Edition, there's... What's this? Six pages just describing each of these people and their backstories and how they ended up becoming these rangers at this outpost. The leader of them, Jakardros 
is actually the stepfather of Shalalu the ranger. And you can have this wonderful little touching moment where they see each other and relive their past trauma and the player characters can help them out. Or more than likely what would happen with the people that I play with is they'd go, oh, that's nifty. Moving on, there's a fort to liberate. And liberating the fort is, as we've already discussed amongst ourselves, probably one of the most interesting parts of this adventure because it is such an interesting setup that has so many different ways that you can tackle it. I personally think that retaking Fort Rannick is probably the best combat section in the first three modules. There is so much that you can do. The, the way that you can infiltrate the fort, the information you can get from the Black Arrows about the layout of the fort. Yeah, they'll even draw you a crude map so you have an idea of where everything is and how you can approach this. The different attack plans that you can have, it's all just so interesting and it leaves the player characters in a position where they get to take control of the story. They get to decide how they want to fight into this fort. My personal preferred way is to go into the secret tunnel behind the waterfall and smoke out shocker lizards and send them up into the fort. I actually really like the secret tunnel behind the waterfall thing because that's a really common trope like in Zelda games and stuff like that. If you see a waterfall, oh yeah, there's a tunnel behind it. Why are you not trying to get behind the waterfall? It's always the case. And I think that the groups I play with most would probably use the trickery approach where they would just show the Sahedrin rune and act like they belong there and then just waltz right in like nobody's business. The absolute worst method it looks like is trying to swim up the sluice gate. It's full of dead bodies. That that's how you get filth fever. Yeah, that's that's pretty gross and probably not the best idea. But it would certainly take them by surprise, which accomplishes the primary goal you're going for. Quick little aside, they even mention that the player characters might have access to flight and might land in one of the tall towers and descend and attack the ogres. And I always like when module designers take into account the magic of the setting. They mention that invisibility could be a thing. They could charm the ogres. And flying in from above is not a thing that a number of modules would even think of. Oh, another thing that I like about this is that there are elements of terrain that can be exploited throughout it. There's a watchtower that might have ogres up in it that you could totally just knock down to kill the ogres. You know, there's options for how to approach this and there's a lot of ways to do it. You can draw them out, you can push them in. It really depends on what the play style of the group is and that's really awesome to me. They even mentioned that the barracks that are made of wood are a death trap because if they catch on fire, it'd be really hard for people to escape from there. And that might be a good way of eliminating, uh, what's it saying here? Twelve ogres. I don't want to fight twelve ogres. Do you want to fight twelve ogres, John? I typically try to avoid fighting twelve ogres. You know, when I think of things I don't want to do, twelve ogres, fighting them, not on the list of things I like. The leader of the Kriegs is a man by the name of Jagrath Krieg. He's horrible. There's wonderful description of exactly how horrible he is. I personally wouldn't mention it to my players because it's kind of squicky and awful. But if your player characters have a stronger stomach for that type of thing, go right for it. He's there. His malformed son is there. And his wife is there. And she casts spells. And all that is really cool. And it, it ends this whole section with a really powerful, strong fight. And then you go through and find out what's left over. You find a message that the leader of the Black Arrows wasn't in the fort at the time. He was out, which gives the other Black Arrows a little bit of hope. And you go down into the basement and you find a lady named Lucretia. 
And I feel that she is incredibly misplaced here. Well, Lucretia, as we kind of learned in the last module, is the sister to the Lamia matriarch who was the boss of that module. So she just appears here in her human form, and her role in this particular part is to call out the character that might potentially be with the player characters who sold out the other rangers in this group. And that gives you an opportunity to call him out in turn and have your player characters discover his treachery and his remorse over his treachery, which could be an important factor. However, that could easily have been accomplished with a note or with anything else that would allude to his guilt in this matter and elicit a confession from him. Her other purpose is to mention Mukmurian, the boss of the next module, as early as possible. She literally offers to take the player characters to him and let them join the winning team in this case, the, the bad guys. Problem with this from my perspective is, again, the groups I play tend to use a lot of trickery with these sort of things. And I think my group would be like, well, yeah, take us to Mokmurian. We'd love to meet him. We'd love to hear his pitch, you know? Maybe it would be right up our alley and maybe we should work for him. And they always have someone with high enough bluff to pull that stuff off. So the fact is this could derail the whole thing. And I always preach when I talk about playing from modules or from adventure paths like this that you need to consider how your group plays when you think about where to place things and what you might potentially change about the module. After a little discussion with Jeremy, I've decided that if I ran this module for one of my groups, I would definitely move her to the place that she's listed as fleeing to if things go sour, but I would still have all the references to to her existence in these quarters and to her work with the ogres. There would be a possibility of talking to or interrogating a captured ogre and finding out about her and probably finding a note or payment, something that alludes to the guilt of Caven Windstrike, the ranger that betrayed the rest of the group. So you've cleared out everything, you've found Lucretia's involvement, and then you go back to town and you just kind of leave the black arrows here going, hey, see you guys later. Have fun cleaning up the remains of your dead brethren. Oh, yeah, and uh, throwing all of those ogres into a mass grave or whatever you want to do with them. We're just going to move on. Actually, it's interesting because, again, the anniversary edition completely omits this, but in the original module, there was a whole section about how to manage a fort and how to take care of things and fix it up, and there's nothing in the anniversary edition except a quick reference to how that's outside the scope of the anniversary edition. It's kind of weird considering that it's a pretty interesting and prominent part of the original module. So from this point, the player characters have a bunch of different places they can go. They can go back to Turtleback Ferry, they can go find the leader of the Black Arrows, or they might have some other leads. We're going to go in order what they say in the module here, but I'm really happy at the amount of open-endedness that this module actually has. You can completely skip over the section at the beginning with the Grawls. If, for example, you don't want to investigate a weird hillbilly in the woods. The player characters go back to Turtleback Ferry, and they see that the town is flooding. The local dam has sprung a leak, and the town is in peril. And here, there's really only two small bits. There's saving a bunch of school children, and then there's fighting a big river monster. 
Yeah, saving the school children is pretty simple. There's just a giant night belly boa, which is a huge snake that attacks the children and swallows young Tabitha Cram, a name they just drop on you out of nowhere with no explanation, just pigtails, freckles and all, just to give you the sense of, like, wubbiness that this girl's supposed to have, and then be swallowed by a boa. My problem with this is, if the boa is using the swallow hole ability, then she takes half the damage that anything attacking the boa would deal, so she's probably done for. I don't think she has the 32 hit points it would take to survive chopping up this boa. Actually, John, the boa doesn't have the swallow hole ability. The little girl getting swallowed whole is really just flavor text. She's probably being constricted or maybe even just being menaced by this big boa. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you're right. It doesn't have swallow whole, which I guess there's nothing wrong with it being flavor. I guess it's just one of those disconnects between the uh, narrative elements and the actual gameplay. Huh. I, I hadn't noticed that. I just, I swallows her makes me think swallowed whole, but no. You then fight a big river monster, which is a CR-15, which there's no way that you'd take it in a straight-up fight. And you don't really have to. You just have to survive and hold it off for four rounds. This whole section doesn't really add anything to the overall story of the town but it lets the player characters be big heroes. It lets them have their big heroic moment, especially after Fort Rannick being so bittersweet. You know, you, you cleared out the ogres, but there's no one there to save. Here, you've saved the whole town. After Turtleback Ferry, you'll want to make sure that the town doesn't get flooded by going up to Skull's Crossing. So there's a giant dam that was built by the Rune Lords back in the Age of the Rune Lords. And there's a bit of a hole in the side of it, and the player characters have to go up there and figure out why the floodgates haven't opened. Why the lake on the other side isn't slowly draining. If the DM has been doing his job the entire time, he's mentioning that there's unseasonable rains, where the, the rains just keep coming down day after day after day, and has been the entire trip that you've come up here. So this dam is full to bursting. Now, this section is just kind of full of trolls. There's... A uh, few ogres here, there's one Etten. Yeah, it's really just a break from ogres, but not from giants. It's to give you something else to fight, and honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to see a little bit of variety, uh, especially the aquatic troll, the scrag. Especially difficult enemy, because one of the major vulnerabilities of trolls is fire, and if it could just go into water, then you have some difficulty hitting it with the fire that you need to finish it off. Hope you brought some acid, that's probably your best bet, or you just didn't capacitate and coup de gras as a final measure, but it is what it is. Eventually, though, you get to the floodgate control room. Now, the floodgates are controlled by a section called the Infernal Engines, a captured pit fiend, and apparently another captured pit fiend at one point powered the floodgates with soul energy, which is cool and awesome and, you know, magical technology and all. Yeah, the theory behind it was it would drain them of a level which they would then recover by making the saving throw to recover it, and every time it did that, it would be able to open and close the floodgates, and this would allow them to drain the water without intervention or a great deal of work to get them open. Unfortunately, eventually you're going to roll a one on your saving throw, and when you roll that one, you don't recover the level. So, one of the pit fiends that was in here is completely dead and gone, and the other one is faded down to a point of barely being alive anymore. This section I really like because it gives the player characters a chance to interrogate a pit fiend, and how were you trapped here? And he 
he'll give a weird name, uh, uh, how do you even say this? Karzug. That's eh, probably nothing important. Yeah, Karzug did it. Who the heck is Karzug? Who cares? We'll never find out. Anyway. And the player characters can figure out some way of opening up the floodgates. Either one of them goes in and they lose a, a level temporarily, or they summon a beast. But the audio drama actually gives Caven Windstrike a moment of redemption. He bursts out here and goes, if anyone's going to sacrifice themselves for this, I need to do this. I betrayed this, not just the Black Arrows, but this town. I need to save them. I am so sorry. He goes in there and dies. He wouldn't die from this, but he, he dies in the audio drama, and it, it's a really good moment. I like this section because, as I said, it gives the player characters a bit of a chance to be clever. They get to figure out exactly how they want to open the floodgates. And it's a quick nod to the fact that you can have morally gray situations even in the face of objective evil because you have this helpless pit fiend who's nearly dead and someone else has to step into the other of the magic circles and then they both get drained which finishes off the pit fiend and injures that person. And is it really morally okay to kill a pit fiend under these circumstances in this ignoble and humiliating way? Or is it still evil even though the pit fiend is objectively evil? And what happens if you free the pit fiend? In the original module, it just says that he runs off to lick his wounds, but in the anniversary edition, it points out that he's so humiliated at being seen in a weakened state that he needs to come back and kill the player characters at a future date so that they never are able to spread stories about him being seen in such a humiliated state. I like that because it drives home the nature of objective evil in the Pathfinder world. He can't even show gratitude for the most basic of assistance. He just has to kill the people who help him because otherwise he might be perceived as weak. The next section is called The Haunted Heart. It's really not a combat section, it's just a section where you encounter a haunted glen. So the leader of the Black Arrows would go out once a month and have a little tryst with a nymph. Well, they were discovered and killed. And the nymph has raised as a ghost. And she is so distraught that her lover is dead that she has come back as a ghost and is inconsolable. And unfortunately, the leader of the Black Arrows died, so there's not really much you can do here. I mean, you, you can probably kill the ghost, but... Well, I mean, you can't really even kill the ghost because the ghost just comes back after uh, 24 hours once it's been killed. The big thing is that she wants a piece of her lover so she can cast Reincarnate on him and bring him back. And... He he died going to fight the ogres up on the hill and she was going to follow him and fight the ogres as well, but was killed on her way. That's my understanding of uh, what it wrote in there. Anyway, point is she needs a piece of him to cast reincarnate, which she can totally do once she has a chance. So let's go up to Hook Mountain. At Hook Mountain, it's the climax of this module, but it's nothing special. It's more combats and just... It's a closer. You do get to see a giant petrified rune giant, which is important foreshadowing for the uh, next few modules. But otherwise, yeah, there's... There's a group of Anis hags that were responsible for creating the torrential downpour that was so threatening to Turtleback Fairy. So there's a good explanation for why this bad thing happened. And I always appreciate that in Pathfinder's modules. They'll throw in little things like that that remind you that they really are paying attention and that things don't just happen because they want them to happen. Eventually you fight the boss of the module, Borrow Breakbones, the stone giant necromancer who rules 
rules over this tribe with an iron fist and has been using the ogrekin and ogres as slave labor for his mines to produce the weapons they're going to need for the eventual raid on Sandpoint, which is a phrase we've heard many times in this adventure path. The fight with Borrow Breakbones is actually pretty decent. He's a necromancer, he has a stone giant ally, and if I were running it, Latimer Baden the leader of the Black Arrows, who's been raised as a white, would come in partway through it, and you get this big climatic battle. You kill them all, you get a bunch of treasure, you have part of the body, so that way she can reincarnate him. You get a happy ending there. Oh, bittersweet, but yeah, yeah, happy ending. You get a bunch of treasure, which you can then donate back to the Black Arrows to give them tools and weapons and armor to help rebuild their fort, and you can really close out this section of the adventure. But you do find a note that does say there is an upcoming attack on the city of Sandpoint. So you gotta get back there. I mean, Sandpoint is, it might not be your home, but it's its your home away from home. It's your second home. You are the heroes of Sandpoint. And you're gonna get an opportunity to be the heroes of Sandpoint yet again. A lot of heroes of Sandpoint moments in these modules. I really like that about it. Kind of gives you a base of operations sort of feel. So really quick retrospective. What did we really like about this module? One thing I like is the tactic sections for all the enemies in the module. Now, Now, I know that Paizo usually does a very good job of this, but what I like is when bosses and other characters tend to use suboptimal tactics. So often, it's easy for the DM to simply think of what the most tactically appropriate choice is in any given situation. You know, the Stone Giant is best off using his spells to the best of his ability and then just using his massive power as a Stone Giant to kill everyone, but it says specifically that what he'll do is sit on his throne until he's absolutely attacked in melee and then he lets out a big sigh and starts fighting. And if he kills one of the player characters, he immediately casts Animate Dead on them to turn them into a zombie, which is a terrible decision. Zombies are pathetically weak monsters at this point. He's doing it to be cruel, but it also acts as a sort of natural limiting factor. If he's killed a player character, the party is now in fairly dire straits. However, wasting time raising them as a zombie creates a self-limiting factor where he's not going to be as powerful and aggressive aggressive as he could possibly be, and that's great. So, up next we have the fourth module in the Rise of the Rune Lord series, Fortress of the Stone Giants. So once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Latest contact with Taractinus indicates he has narrowed the search. He believes a human town called Sandpoint could hide what my lord seeks. He will lead several of the people, as well as the dragon, on a raid into the town soon. Note to borrow from Bakamarine. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. 